podcast is brought to you by Welcome all you QT faithful to your monthly Hymnal devotional, where each month we sit down and take an intense look at one of the majestic soundtracks from the Tarantinoverse. I'm your host, the Reverend Scott K, and it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show for his third devotional, Mr. Sean Wheeler, owner of Scareflare Records and co-host of the Splatterhouse Podcast. Together, we'll be taking a very unique journey through the Hateful Eight soundtrack. Welcome back, Mr. Wheeler, and may Tarantino be with you always. Amen. How have you been since July? Bill Bill. Kill Bill, Kill Bill Volume 2, I believe you were yeah. on. You did the Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2, yep. and this will be your third devotional. You, Pat Fournier, and Mr. Frank Hannon have all done three of the 12 devotionals. You each have tripled up. I think this is my last one. This is my this second is your last one. Eight podcast with you. Yes. Yes, it is. And that's it. You're done. <laughs> I love talking about, you know, this great film. So Actually, since I've already kind of announced it last month, you will be joining me on a monthly basis, whether you want to or not. We'll actually kind of volunteer it a little bit. So you are going to be an acolyte. What have we decided for you? Are you like a cardinal? Cardinal. A cardinal? I mean, don't you have to don't you have to get a little diddled by a, no, I by just a want cardinal the, first? I want the don't red you? robes and all the fucking jewelry. <laughs> so you are going to be my co-host on the inglorious blue balls a bastard's work left undone are believe it or not if we survive this long but there are we've come up with 36 strong announcements from mr tarantino that never came to fruition so we will start that january the end of january 2024 so just a little over two months away for the new voyage of season three i'm excited for that We've got a whole bunch of shit planned for that too. Like I'm excited about that. We do. We have a whole bunch of stuff going on. It's gonna be fun. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Before we started recording, you told me basically everything else in your life is uh, on hold. As what happens. I mean, you're in the you're kind of in the uh, you're in the Midwest, I guess. I'm right in the, like if you. It's, it's weird. Missouri's kind of like in that that weird line of Midwest, almost the South. Yeah. Well, no, I've become like a road warrior here over the last couple months because I. You know, I have noticed you dressing weirder and beating up people for gas. It's very yeah, weird. Yeah, all the assless chaps. The assless chaps look great. Um, yeah. No, like I was in Houston, Texas one week mm-hmm. and then in Minnesota two weeks later. And then I was all the way up to Philadelphia. I got to do the famous Monsters uh, debut thing back with like Ozzy Osbourne was there. And, you know, that was kind of yeah. a cool thing. I got to meet Sharon while I was there. I ran into her in an um, elevator. But. Hmm. Yeah, so I've been doing conventions, pushing the label, selling anything I can, pins, cassettes. Uh, I've got Blu-rays up the wazoo that I've been selling. So 
yeah, stocking anything we can to hmm. make money here while we're kind of down waiting for projects to come in with the record label because it's really, really hard to get projects right now. Um, I'm, I'm, at the, I'm at that point where I can request bigger titles, but I have to wait longer to get mm. permission to do them. So I'm trying to find littler stuff to do in the meantime that's not gotcha. going to drain our bank account because this licensing thing is getting to be a bitch. Um, mm. As you were discussing on your last podcast that I was listening to with Frank, that the licensing stuff is just uh, complete and you keep saying i don't know why i can't get that it's because they and they don't want to pay if, every time you stream it if they're going to get 10 cents mm -hmm. and it's going through the hate or through the django unchained they'd only get a nickel well yeah. by the time they get through with all the fees and shit they're getting like two cents so they'd rather they just haven't put it up on their own but that's one of the main reasons you don't see some of these songs on these soundtracks they'd rather have you go to the um you know to listen to i've got a name from his greatest hits because then yeah. that Whoever owns well, my that. complaint was the uh, Hundred Black Coffins, which was yeah. created specifically yeah. for the Django Unchained album. And, uh, and if he would have put, that I have on it a... now. Just all my listeners, I, I do have it now. Someone, <laughs> some good friends of mine, may or may not have found a way to get me the full thing without me having to pay for it. So sometimes there's a few perks. There's a few perks to being the pastor, the reverend of a church, and that sounds well, very strange. No, I'm just gonna leave it there. I was sending you videos of me spinning it on on my beautiful blood splattered yes, vinyl. Yes, you did, you piece of shit. <laughs> the the gummy mouth bitch version of it. Yes. Now, speaking of gummy mouth bitches, did you put up the video of you running through Philadelphia in the humongous assless chaps outfit up the steps of Liberty Hall no. like Stallone? I mean, I know there's a video out there of you doing this. Have you no. have it gone viral yet? Not yet. No, I, I didn't even go like um. so my trip to Philadelphia, it was like a 16 hour drive there. And by the time I got there, like I stopped at Buffalo Bill's house was like the extent of my adventures there um the houston one i did do a lot more as you know there i went and i stayed in austin for the night and i stayed at the gas station where the texas chainsaw massacre mm. was filmed i went to the graveyard of that and then i even went and found where he dances with the chainsaw at the end of the movie mm. which is almost gone like they're building there's construction guys looking through the fence at me less than five feet when i wow. was out there taking pictures um but i also did get to go eat at the texas chili parlor that night and i waited almost 30 minutes to sit where Stuntman Mike sits at the bar to eat my killer's nachos, is what they're called on the menu. Hmm. Yeah, I finally got to, you know, visit something from Death Proof because anyone that's listened to the podcast knows how much I love the movies. Yeah. I know you were jealous as fuck when I was sending you pictures. Yeah, yeah. I was, you know, I thought maybe someone might, you want, might want to go right, but you're going left regardless. So, you know, yeah. you never know. The bar is extremely cool, though, and it looks just like it yeah. did in the film. I mean, anyone that follows me on Facebook or anything, and I, you've seen pictures, mm -hmm. and they've maybe moved a few things. There's even signs up that were in the film still dirtiest bathroom i've ever been in in my entire life but that was my <laughs> only complaint about the trip and i was sitting out in my car and i think i actually sent it to you while i was sitting there the the state capitals right there from yeah. and they used like i actually went and found the exact spot where they filmed a machete less than like mm -hmm. half a block away so it's pretty cool because i i don't think i've ever stood anywhere where i knew that robert de niro had been standing or it's green screened. Who the fuck knows? No one, yeah. no one Rodriguez. <laughs> My fans would be very upset with me if I don't ask you the two questions since you mentioned Buffalo Bill. Number one, did you use the lotion? No, I did not. Number two, would you fuck yourself? Um, my wife tells me to go fuck myself all the time. Okay, there we go. And actually, I while I was in um while I was in Houston, I met Brooke Smith, the girl at the bottom of the well. Mm. She was uh sitting Moving in the, the hotel. Couch? Damn it, you should have just gone when she was moving a couch. No. It was, it was low-hanging fruit for you. You're a great big fat person. No, um, <laughs> not her. It's a different girl. But um, yeah, the girl at the bottom of the well, the senator's daughter, I got yeah. I was walking through the hotel and there she was sitting. I was like, 
holy shit, you, you were on Ray Donovan. <laughs> Don't bring up the sounds of the lambs. So, yeah. She's a nice, nice lady, though. So, as people who can't see, because this is a audio medium and not a visual medium, I Thank have you. a giant Hateful Eight poster hanging on my wall that Mr. Wheeler sent me last year. It's one of my prized possessions. I absolutely love it. That brings us to why we're here. The Hateful Fucking Eight. The movie... And soundtrack that almost weren't. When you first heard that the Hateful Eight had been leaked and then Tarantino threw a tizzy fit, a full-on throw-down, kick-your-feet, stomp, temper tantrum, did you think that this movie was doomed? Because he said, I'm not making it. Yeah, I didn't think he was going to make it. But he says all the time, as our podcast is going to cover, he says a lot <laughs> of shit he is going to mm. do and not going to do. And then mm-hmm. he never does any of it. So Yeah. I actually thought he was still going to make the movie. I figured no matter how pissed off he might be, that he would probably change something or do something. But you didn't. he spent a while writing this film, unlike the new movie coming out that <laughs> is the TV show turned into the movie. Uh, unlike that, he uh, he spent a lot of time writing this film. So I really did feel he was going to do it. And then once you know they get the actors sit down, they do the, the read through, which to me <laughs> is, yeah. is very a very Tarantino thing to do that he does in his life. It was almost like, well, let me see what my Hollywood friends think and see if they think I'm a genius. And then once they're like, this is a genius, Quentin. You've got to make this as a film. He was like, oh, all right. He's <laughs> like, I guess I will. You I guess if you're going to fucking, you're going to push me to it, I guess I'll do it. So he makes the movie, as we all know. I'm glad he did. Oh, I'm, 100% I'm glad he did. Like I said, it's in my top three of all time of his. It may one day, you never know. Maybe one day before I die, supplant it and be my favorite. I Because I, I, as I get older, my taste change a little bit. And you keep saying that. It, it moved up. Um, I, I got a bootleg copy of The Roadshow. And I was watching that and I just like, I was like, oh my God. Cause there's like, I think 33 <laughs> minutes added into it or something. And it moved up a few notches like this week. Cause I've watched it twice this week to prepare for this, the regular and the road. It's show. just one of those. It just gets better with every viewing. It yep, cause really I, you know truly does. Yes. Yep. Uh, I've equated it to the No Country for Old Men. I remember seeing that for the first time. Loved it to the ending. Thought, God damn it, I've been cheated at the ending. But yet it stuck with me when I left the theater. And I had to go, I went back and saw it like a couple days later. And the more I watched the No Country for Old Men, the more things I see, the more I love that movie. And the more that ending is the only way it can end. And yeah. it's much like The Hateful Eight. When you first watch it, it takes a long time. It's like an hour and a half before they kill the old racist, <laughs> the old racist man when he has to learn about his son sucking a black man's thing before he's killed. And you sit there and you go, Jesus, that's, I mean, obviously once my time said, hold my beer. And they went over two and a half hours before we got any real death, not uh, TV reenacted death. So you sit there and you watch it. And then when you go back and watch it, knowing everything's happening, get to watch how he's crafted it. And you get to, especially if you're a fan of the thing. And uh, if you listen to my episode, you haven't yet because it's not out till tomorrow (laughs) because we're recording this two weeks ahead. I already know everything you guys are going to fucking say anyway. But yeah, but if you, if, if you listen to the episode and you've watched the thing, it is, it is definitely a kindred spirit to think, but it's a different animal all into itself as well. And in fairness, where John Carpenter used mood and, you know, j- just certain shots and, and slowly led us down that mystery, Tarantino went with his dialogue. He set up this powder keg with 
using the Civil War, post-Civil War, and having a black colonel from the army and the son of some rebel fucking wild uh, just gunslinger killing black people on their, as they're trying to become free. That tension was built before we even got there. And then we find out that someone might be wanting to free Daisy. So there was so much going on. There was like 12 fucking possible things happening at one time in that film. So while having rewatched The Thing, I really saw the influences on The Hateful Eight. I also still see The Hateful Eight as its own monster unto itself, using the tension and amazing story development that obviously John Carpenter did from that the short story. Yep, I think the the, the main difference that, because I just watched The Thing this week too with it being Halloween and everything. Carpenter had a great cast, but half mm-hmm. of them you didn't know who the fuck they were. We mentioned Where that. you walked the into episode, The yeah. Hateful Eight and like everybody, even down to Minnie, I'm like, well, that's fucking, what do you call it, from Django and Chain? Like I knew mm-hmm. who everybody was where, you know, like it, it a little distracting the first time I watched it because it's just, I mean, you can't get past Kurt Russell's mm-hmm. beard and Walton Goggins' teeth and all this shit going on in that movie. So obviously, you know, that's a, the subtle differences, but different animals, same species, I guess. So for this little uh, devotional this month, we're going to do something different. We're going to completely, this is not going to be like the last 10 because this is a monster unto itself. So we're about to kick the fucking tires and light some fucking fires. And now it's time to reach on your pews and pull out your Church of Tarantino hymnal as we begin our devotional with the soundtrack from The Hateful Eight. This soundtrack was released on December 18th, 2015 by Decca and Third Man Records. It features 28 tracks, mostly composed by Ennio Morricone, with four tracks from various artists, and has a running time of 72 minutes and 47 seconds. This soundtrack won a total of 15 awards, including the BAFTA for Best Original Music, the Golden Globe for Best Original Score, and the Oscar for Best Original Score. It is the only Academy Award Ennio Morricone won during his illustrious career, and the only Tarantino film to date to have a soundtrack composed for it. This was Morricone's first Western score since 1981's Buddy Goes West, and his first Hollywood score since Rip This Game in 2002. Before we jump into the Morricone section, which is a heavy of the section. This is not Tarantino's first attempt at getting Morricone to compose a soundtrack for him. In fact, many people don't know, but he's tried this twice. The first being for Pulp Fiction, which I found very stunning considering that what Pulp Fiction did with his needle drops, pretty much cementing him from that moment on, as the needle drop king to which all others are compared, it would have been a very different Tarantino world had Morricone done this as opposed to how he did it. Do you think that he had scored Pulp Fiction? It would have been more of an untouchables feel? Or where would he have leaned? Because Pulp Fiction does not lend itself to any kind of spaghetti western feel, nor does it lean itself towards any kind of horror feel. So, I mean, except except maybe, you know, the basement uh, moment where they're about to be raped. But other than that, there's, you know, not a lot of the usual things we associate Mr. Morricone with. No, I mean, he's known for the spaghetti westerns, the giallos, and then, you know, well, even some of the other, I guess, I don't even consider Once Upon a Time in the West a spaghetti western anymore, really, even though it was made, mm-hmm. you know, half there and half here and everything. But, yeah, he's done a lot of other stuff, too, like, you yes. know, Heaven's Gate and stuff like that. And there's been a lot. The Mission is one of his most popular ones. Yes. And, well, hell, I, I mean, I didn't even know he did The Thing for a very long time. I, yeah. Just John Carpenter, Carpenter usually does it's The Thing. Carpenter, exactly. Which we'll get into later. But because you can't talk about this score without bringing no, up The agreed. Thing. Yeah. Like, he's done so much other stuff along the way. I mean, I, I was just, if you, he's scored, what, over 
over 750 it's movies or something. He's done so much yeah. of his life. I'm well, look such at the a spaghetti westerns that we were talking about alone. You were talking about all these movies that Corbucci made within like a five-year period. Every one of them is Morricone, mm -hmm. and he was also doing all the Sergio Leone stuff. Mm -hmm. And for other people, I mean, there's one year I think I counted, he put out nine scores, and every one of them is impeccable in its own way. Yeah, I was going to say, because he's not just pumping out this bullshit. And, you know, I mean, Hans Zimmer has a <laughs> has a thing about that, too, sometimes. But, yeah, he just wasn't just pumping out crap. Yeah, I think your Pulp Fiction would have been drastically different. Obviously, yes, I mean, I agree. he'd already cemented himself a little bit with the needle drops in Reservoir Dogs. But I think it would have been more like this, where you would have had less needle drops mm -hmm. and music segueing you from scene to scene and i don't think it would have been as powerful i think he no went, i don't think it would have been as iconic as it is because Marcone said that um he wasn't going to give me enough time to really do a proper score and he says the same because the other one was uh inglorious bastards which that one feels like those would be married to each other because i mean he uses a lot of score pieces as it is in that film plus it does feel like i mean it really does feel like that would be a morricone scored film if half of it is i know if <laughs> the it option was there so it does it yeah. would work for sure yep and you would have had the david bowie in there and stuff like yeah. you know so yeah that like i think that would have fit more of the pulp fiction i think it, it we wouldn't be talking about the movie you wouldn't be doing a whole year on it, i don't think that's true this is true Probably, uh you know, I think that might have been a blessing in disguise. It'd just be a 30th anniversary special and move on. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. I don't think it's the same movie, has the same impact, because the uh, the soundtrack and the film are married together for that film, for sure. If he did Inglorious Bastards, it would have worked, but I don't think it would have been as playful with the music as True. it is. Where there's some of the music is really playful during it. When you listen to it and watch the movie, there's stuff that um, that is tied to that film that, you know, little things here and there that you hear mm -hmm. that... Like the the use of white lightning with that redneck mm -hmm. twang noise to it and everything, you know, like you wouldn't have had that. It would yeah. have been something completely different. So, and Morcone, like I love all of his scores. Probably, I don't know if it's my favorite composer, my, definitely my top three. But some of the stuff like is really really good. And some of there's a, he he's done a lot over mm -hmm. the years too. That it's just like you'll listen to it. And it's like yeah, this isn't my cup of tea. He does a mm -hmm. lot of different stuff. I think there's record sets right now where he's like, it's giallos, westerns. He even did like some disco and lounge music over the years. And mm -hmm. um, there's one called Passion or Love that is all like love themes and stuff. I mean, hmm. the man has done everything. Yeah. Now, for those of you who don't or haven't been paying attention to this podcast series, Tarantino has used Morricone's music in his films such as Kill Bill, Death Proof, Inglourious Bastards, and Django Unchained, for which... If you remember from last month, Django Chain was the first soundtrack that Morricone created an original piece of music for Tarantino to use. Now, there was some brief controversy between Tarantino and Mr. Morricone following Django Chain. Morricone stated that Tarantino used the piece of music without coherence and said that he would not like to work with him ever again on anything. Soon after, he released a second statement to clarify that. His remarks were taken out of context. He went on to say that he had great respect for Tarantino and that he's happy that he chose his music to use in his films. The rest is now history. Mr. Wheeler, are we calling some bullshit on Morricone? Now, I know there is, a, I know there is some, um, some language barriers, obviously, but I feel this is my interpretation of the real behind the scenes, the stuff that we'll never actually hear, even though now that Mr. Morricone has since passed back in was it, 2020 and is no longer with us. I believe that Morricone felt this way. He felt that he is the maestro, as they know, and he would have put that song somewhere else in the film, and it would have lasted longer than he did, which is probably where his statement comes from. I don't think it's as egregious or attractful as it can come out, come across, where probably the translation 
helps. I do believe, though, he was pretty ticked off and was like, I'm not doing anything with this guy anymore. He doesn't know how to properly put music in. To which I think someone who is in his camp... PR or whatever said to him, listen, you were a big deal back in the day, but most people have forgotten about you. This man brought your music and some of those films and their scores back to life. He is a true fan of yours and nothing but adores and loves you. You may want to reconsider because you're you're probably pissing in the face of the probably the biggest fan of yours that's still probably alive or at least has a platform to push you forward. And so I think Morricone came to a sense of like, you know what? I maybe maybe came across a little harsh. And I think, you know, he just made the little, hey, look, you know, I do appreciate that he is kind of basically whatever, you know, back then, this is before streaming. So whatever extra stuff was being sold, he was going to make some fucking residuals for him. So I think it's probably a little bit like, hey, thanks. You know, I got that nice little vacation home in Rome. So I just think that behind the scenes, Morricone was reminded, hey, this guy really does admire you and loves you. And, you know, maybe your thing came across a little like calling him fucking an idiot because, I mean, he's used all your movie films. So what, what is your, your interpretation? So I actually found some different information on it that may be different than what you found, and I found it on three different sources. This whole thing came from a German Playboy interview fucking that he Germans. gave, which German Playboy is basically penthouse. <laughs> um, but can you imagine <laughs> the audio reading of a German Playboy? Because the German Playboy, you know, it's just so fucking aggressive. So that was in the November 18th. Uh, play, German Playboy publishes an article. Um, he called Quentin Tarantino chaotic, called him a Cretan who steals from others and puts stuff back together again in incoherent ways. On November 11th of that same month, Marconi denied even giving the interview to German Playboy and says he would never call them a Cretan and doesn't consider it garbage. On the 12th, German Playboy stood by it. And on the 13th, German Playboy admitted to misquoting Marconi and blames the writer interviewer. And what I think happened is, from what I understand, is that they... It was a freelance writer that did the interview mm-hmm. and Morricone did not even know that it was going to be, he's getting interviewed for Playboy. And because of his age, he didn't remember it. And it sounds like there was a huge problem with the the gap between German and Italy and the tape and everything else. Mm-hmm. And if you notice, Tarantino never made a public statement about any of this feud because he knows where he stands with the old man. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah. I agree with you that someone probably said, hey, did you, what the fuck did you say? Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, but I a lot of it is the German playboy just hired somebody to go do it, and then it's all fucked up from that point on. And they fact checked it. And I guess they listened to the tapes and everything, and half the shit was it was a misquote based on the language barrier. Well, I'm glad they I'm glad they worked it out because, and I'm sure Morcone is glad too. I mean, now he's passed, but I'm sure in uh, February March of 2016 when he got that. Those, those statues, I'm sure he was like, he's a genius. <laughs> yep. They also were giving him shit during that same interview that he was miserable at the Oscars and everything. And he's like, and then when he came out with a statement, it's like, I'm an old man. I sat on a plane from Italy to there and then sat there the whole night. I, you know, like, I don't do well with all this with all of this, you know, like, so and that's what he told yeah. him. I think there, if you go to his website, there's actually like, you can pull up like his stuff from it and he even like threatened to hit him with a legal shit over over it so a german playboy fucked it up he called horse shit ah horse shit (laughs) german playboy's horse shit artist (laughs) the good thing about this is 
if anyone has an opportunity, and right right now it's not technically streaming, it's on another service, and uh, I had to rent, get, get onto that service so I could watch this, um, but they have the recording of the Abbey Road documentary of where they re-recorded the entire soundtrack at Abbey Road Studios, and they set this bad boy up. The outside is set up with the hay flail. It was, it was really fucking cool. And there's moments in between him recording some of the songs where there's an interview between with him, there's an interview with Tarantino, and there's an interview with the two of them together. And we learn quickly that Tarantino went to his house. Uh, it was like a night before they were supposed to go to some Italian um, film award something. I forget the name of the, the event they went to together, which is where they kind of announced that they were going to be working together. But he went there, brought the script, Morcone reads the script along with his wife, and it's really his wife who kind of nudged him and said, look, this, this is right up your alley. This, this is for you. You should be doing this. It's going to be great. And, I mean, really, the rest is totally history. And it's really cool if you get a chance to watch this because it just gives you more background of, of the music. And, I mean, it's awesome to see them record it and all this stuff, but it's awesome to see him work. And you get to see, I mean, Tarantino is a fanboy in the moment. I mean, he's sitting next to him. And normally, if Tarantino's sitting in front of anyone's being interviewed, nor, and even I've seen him in some roundtables where he's with other great directors, and yet he's still, he, he, like, his presence is is larger even than some of them. Like, even if he's sitting with Scorsese, and Scorsese's a giant in the industry, but Scorsese's not this really verbose guy like Tarantino. So even when Tarantino's there, it's he just brings this energy. But when he's sitting next to Morricone, he was really subdued. Like Norman's like, okay, okay, okay. He none of that. He's very nope. quiet and composed. Like he is sitting Respectful next to the maestro. Fuck. Yeah, exactly. It's just weird to see someone who I would hold like I would be sitting like Tarantino next to him. Like he is the Morricone. That you just sit there and you're in awe that you're in the same presence of this person that you would hold in such high regard. And so it's a really, really cool, really cool freaking documentary. And just just to hear them, you know, the, it's it's unbelievable. Like the the musicianship is spectacular. You know, I know Morricone gets all the credit for composing this, but he's had some really great orchestras play it for him and then watching them play a lot of it it was like i mean i played bass for 20 years plus and just watching the cello stuff on it there's a lot of stuff on there that i I didn't i guess my ears never picked up that they're doing documentary that he's talking about is called morricone and tarantino at abbey road studios it's a 75 minute documentary from 2016 i found it on amazon i rented it for like two dollars and 99 cents if you're a fan of the score or the movie um, Kurt Russell shows up. Uh, Walton Goggins, Walt Goggins shows up. There. The two it. of them are there. Yep. And then a lot of the behind the scenes people do a lot of interviews and stuff too. And Abbey Road is very unique because while they're recording it, it's um, direct to disc, meaning that yeah. there's a lathe being cut and a lacquer for the vinyl, mm-hmm. which they did release this as a vinyl record. I actually own a copy of it. It's extremely rare now, but yeah, the, it's a really cool um, piece. And I guess I have a friend that works here that owns another record label that. Um, I did a Silent Night, Deadly Night a while ago, like an exclusive from, and he works at Abbey Road. Um, I don't know exactly what he does there because, you know, like we're friends on Facebook mm-hmm. and we talk back and forth and stuff, but it's a very highly regarded night of having Morricone come in because they don't, you know, I mean, it's where the Beatles recorded and everything mm-hmm. and they, they talk about that, but the Morricone coming in with Tarantino and that was a huge event. I think it was the weekend before they dropped the movie in the theater before the big um, premiere over there. I think it's pretty cool because while everyone, I mean, Abbey Road is is famous because of the Beatles. I like the fact that it, you know, they they made it about the moment. You know, they made it about 
who was there, what was there. You know, if you don't know about Abbey Road, then you know you're living under a rock, or you're very young, and you should definitely check out what Abbey Road is. It's not just a Beatles album. I mean, it is a Beatles no. album, but it's not just a Beatles album. So it is the recording studio that ever recording studio since that one has mimicked. As Tread Yep. Oh. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually Darren, the guy I was talking about, like just to have him master for vinyl some of the records that I'm thinking about putting out. You get to put that stamp on there, mm-hmm. you know. It was mastered for vinyl by Darren at Abbey Road. As soon as that's on there, it's a stamp of approval, mm-hmm. almost like it is now with the third man records over here. As soon as you see that, it's a sign of excellence in vinyl. And we're going to talk more about third man as we go, I'm sure. So that feels like that was an intentional breadcrumb. <laughs> we call that in the biz foreshadowing. <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that because that, um, one of the one of the people who may or may not own that record label also has a track on this album we're going to get into in a little bit. But watching that, I played in the band in elementary school up until my freshman year of high school, and then I was playing sports and just didn't have time What'd you play? for that. I played the saxophone. I played all the saxophones. I started on alto, went to tenor, and by the time I was uh, in high school, I was on the baritone sax. The only thing I didn't play was the fucking Kenny G soprano sax. Well, fuck that was. I played trumpet. I played trumpet, but it wasn't very good. Well, so. what makes me think of it is I had a buddy who lived in my neighborhood, and we played volleyball together, and he played bassoon. And I always thought, why the fuck would anyone want to play bassoon? And the fucking, I love the opening. It's one of my favorite. I love the opening of this movie with the bassoon in it. And it, it's so fucking haunting and awesome. But who would have thought, here I am many years ago going, fuck wants to play the bassoon. Because the bassoon yep. is like the baritone sax of the clarinet. That's what the bassoon is, at least, least in the bands. and The least pussy-getting instrument in the band. 100%. Outside <laughs> Other of, than the woodblock. Or the piccolo. <laughs> I, like it's not. You're not getting a lot of ass. Like saxophone <laughs> trumpet, that's sexy, you know that. that. But, yeah, the, uh, the bassoon and the oboe, yeah, no one's player. like, oh, I'm dating the bassoon you? player. <laughs> <laughs> but here it is, though. That bassoon was cool as shit. It was just when I watched it on the video, it just take me, took me back to the days of being in the band and being on stage when we had to rehearse and that and then uh, i was just it was really cool to see a bassoon being used and changing my mind on what a bassoon could be because it's a badass part and this whole soundtrack you know i'm not a big fan of scores i mean there are some that are you know obviously for me as you were saying my favorite film score composer is john williams he has made some of the most memorable scores and theme songs ever like ever however for my number two i would have to put more cone next because Sometimes you don't even realize that Morcone has done these. Like, in my journey of paying attention to this and going through it, I love The Untouchables. I had no idea Morcone was the one. You know what? I probably do know because I'm from the titles on the movie, but never really paid attention to it. You know, like, it didn't, like, register in my head like it would, like, a Tarantino. But I fucking love The Untouchables score. And, of course, it's Morcone. And, like, we talked about it, and we'll get into further in a little bit. But I had no fucking clue he even did Thing, The Thing. I was kind of like, that's John Carpenter. John Carpenter does all his scores. And then I was like, it's not John Carpenter? I was like, well, what the fuck? There's a, there's a few reasons behind that. And I guess, like, we'll get into it and hear a little bit about it that I found that I went through and scoured, like, a whole bunch of interviews and shit that mm-hmm. I have of Carpenter. Because Carpenter, I think, is my second favorite uh, composer. Which, if you're not a Carpenter fan, I bet a lot of people don't realize that John Carpenter normally scores his own films. Yeah. You know, like when I was younger, watch a Carpenter film. I'm watching Escape from New York. I don't realize that John Carpenter's scoring this. I have no idea what that is. I just, I like the music. 
I like the movie. I like John Carpenter. As I get older, I go, he fucking scored it too. Like, I feel like such a hack. That's why I do so many extra things. I'm like, I gotta do more. I gotta add more things. Yeah, that was because well, I gotta be. What, I gotta keep up with these guys. That was my first um, escape from New York. I found a cassette at a flea market with my mom when I was a kid for like fifty cents, and that was my first film score. And I'd seen the movie with my dad and loved the movie and just listened to it over and over and over again. And like, I would love to be able to put that out someday. Like, I love that. That score is so good. And it's not even my favorite one of his. He's got so many good ones Mm -hmm. that. So, but the reason we're not going to do a track by track of this part of the soundtrack that is all more coins, because normally when I do it on this devotional, I'm letting you know what tracks are on it and who's made them. Well, Morricone did almost all of them. All of the instrumental score is by him. And he conducted and composed it all. And if there was ever going to be a soundtrack that it worked perfectly for or the, the two people joined together, it's these two. And it, like we said, it would have worked for Inglourious Bastards, but you're right. It probably would not have had the same upbeat. You don't need many upbeat moments. The funniest moments happen through character. And maybe the moment I laughed the most, which is odd to say, is when Tarantino comes back and <laughs> talking about... Well, while Marquess was regaling everybody with tales of black dicks and white mouths, I just remember laughing my ass off in the theater at that. There's, you know, there's there's funny moments. Obviously, there's intentional funny moments and little things here and there. But overall, the score goes so well with it. It moves. It adds character to the 100%. whole hundred percent. There's like this built up tension and like this dark cloud mm-hmm. over the whole movie because of the score. Mm-hmm. And it starts from the minute that first fucking scene where the stagecoach comes flying up that road with the with the cross yeah it feels like a seven minute thing to watch that stagecoach make its way all the way to the front of the camera and it's becoming like i know that you always ask like what's your favorite intro you know like we've talked about mm-hmm. it. i think i've talked about it with you before too and i think like this was on my list where well yeah it's one of my favorite credit sequences yeah. I, I like this more than miserlou or I don't know if I like it as much as the Kill Bill song because the Kill Bill song is so cool. But <laughs> well, really, you know, it's just of his movies. There's really this. So there's three of them, right? So Jackie Brown was the first to have like a theme song, and just we watched the person. There was no like no cold yeah. open. It was just Jackie Brown going through the plane, and we got across 110th Street yep, you know, right like, away. Yeah, even from yeah, the, oh, that's awesome. From the Miramax logo. Next time it happens is, and this is the only time, and I talked about this uh, two months ago, but for Inglorious Bastards, we get that opening song, and it's over credits. That's the first time we actually have credits that roll before we even get a, a, a minute of, of any screen time. And then this would be the next movie where, like with Django, I guess we kind of get it, but with Django is an awesome opening, but it's it's a we're kind of matching and trying to be a kinder spirit to the original Django and how that, that opened up. It makes it more Jackie Brown as well. Then. It does, but it leads quickly into, who's that stumbling around the dark, prepared to get wanged? You know what I mean? We get that great little moment. Speak English. So this one really does lead itself to like we watch this fucking carriage with that great setup of that wooden Jesus nailed in the snow. You're just kind of like, and you have no context for why that's there, but it's just a great imagery. It's like I've said, it reminds Reminded me a bit of the dancing naked Jesuses that are yeah. uh, like there's four of them, five of them. They're 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 like the ceramic statues that are behind uh-huh. Alex's bed in um, a Clockwork Orange. It's just an imagery that you that just is embedded in your head. You have no idea why it's there. You see it one time, but it's it's everlasting for me. Just like this, that that long shot of that coming, and then the oboe and the whole thing. So the score is just spectacular. But we're not going to go piece by piece of the score because buy the fucking score, watch the fucking movie. The score is f- like 
since I think we're going to move on to the songs here, the score is fucking fantastic. It's one of my favorite scores that's ever been made. Mm-hmm. I I enjoy listening to it. It's on my playlist. Yeah. You know, not just the needle drops. I put a lot of some of the score on it, and it just it gets you in a mood, especially yep. this time of year when it's like snowy on stuff like that. There's, there's just a certain mood that it, it helps. And we, we drove an hour and a half, I think, on Christmas. My dad, my brother, and I, I think I talked about this on the first Hateful Eight podcast I did mm-hmm. where we went to the road show, and we got and in there. Like, hated it. We got in there like a half hour early, and they had that, the stagecoach just driving on like a loop and then they played the overture on a loop and i mean you want to talk about getting you in a mood for a fucking movie because normally you go and it's just a bunch of annoying fucking cellular commercials and shit and you know silence your cell phones and bullshit and this was completely different my brother and i both were like i don't know what the fuck we're in for but this is gonna this is gonna have to be good yeah i wasn't let down my dad hated the fucking movie but he's also a john wayne fan where he's like they didn't talk that much back in the west it's like yeah well okay well because John turned, Wayne couldn't remember that many lines. Yeah, I told him, like, I, I keep, I said it on here before too, like, I've seen Running Scared. You know how I feel about John Wayne. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it sets off all the shit in that movie. <laughs> well, let's jump into the four songs that are needle drops in this film. Well, actually, three songs needle drops, and we'll get to one that a live recording Part on set that led to something quite amazing. Yeah. Our first track of non-scored music comes from the man who owns third, third Man Records, and that is Apple Blossom from The White Stripes. This song is the fourth track on The White Stripes' second studio album, Destigial, released in 2000. This album was a sleeper hit for the band and put them on the U.S. map. The album peaked at number 38 on the U.S. independent albums chart and has sold close to half a million copies worldwide. Now, on the CD or on the record, it'll say Jack White. However, he did write the song, but it was performed and off an album by The White Stripes. Now, this song plays after John Ruth has just grown Graciously elbowed Daisy in the mouth to set up some kind of uh, arrangement where we learn how to talk and you need to say something. And she's starting to bleed from the mouth and she's staring at Warren and like licking her face. And he's kind of like, don't know what this bitch is all about. He's got smiling at her a little bit. When you hear it at first time, sometimes like even when you had, um, I felt this way when cat people played, you go, man, is, does this fit? Is this right? And the more you realize the man put it in there for a reason. If you listen to the lyrics that are being played at the moment, it's literally talking about how when she gets her come up, it's when it's her turn to get free. And one, I'm a huge fan of Jack White and the White Stripes. He is one of the most talented human beings on the fucking planet. Um, he was just recently in, which surprised me, he was recently in The Killers of the Flower Moon from Scorsese. He's at the end of the movie. Really? Yeah. Have you, have you seen the movie yet? No, no, I haven't. I don't go to the theater anymore. So is it anywhere to stream it? You, I think it's already on Apple TV. It's an Apple TV exclusive. So if you have Apple TV Plus, Apple TV. you've got um, it's in. I, Jack White's best performance has been in Dewey Cox when he played Elvis Presley. I don't know if you've seen it or not. Yes. Scene-stealing yep. actor. <laughs> Look out now. I won't give it away for those who haven't seen it. It's a long movie. you got to wait like three hours and ten minutes to see him, maybe 3.15, him to pop up on the screens. So it's at the end. Yeah, of I want to see it. I just haven't. Like, I was going to go see Dawn of the Dead here over the weekend because it's replaying. And like, I just, yeah, it's back out. I yep. Where I live, you were around here too for your military stuff. Yeah, like, there's, yeah. There's a fucking theater. I have one theater with like three screens and it's showing Barbie still. Still? So I got to drive like an hour, hour and a half away to go to a real fucking theater. For me, it's always worth it. But anywho, that's just me. I'm, I'm a sicko. I love the song. It fits the moment. 
I will always say that. And if anyone's like, I parrot that the entire season uh, on this series. And um, once again, every time I hear it, just like with the cat people, it fits. It works more and more for me every time I see it. Tarantino's found a, an interesting way to sometimes maybe you know hit the nail right on the head with the songs, but he he finds a way to put them in there where they start to actually add as part of the narrative for the film if you're paying attention. Much like when Frank and I talked about I Got a Name from Jim Croce. Yes, but Jim Croce, not not Christ, but Jim Croce, uh, Jim Christ, he he was Jesus' brother and he died of dysentery. But it was Croce. He, 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 hid, he hid one of those spikes up his ass for fighting. Anyway, anyways, <laughs> it was a long way around to a Jesus joke. Anyways, but Jim Croce, his song, I've Got a Name, plays right when basically... We freed Django. Django is now the partner yeah. of King Schultz, and and that song starts playing. And then when you hear the song, if you listen to the lyrics, I've got a name. Like he's no longer a slave. He is now Django. Django Freeman. So there's a lot of stuff being played in there with the song. That it's not just a cool song that works really well with the the Western you know, visuals. It works because it's telling a story, much like this song, Apple Blossoms by the White Stripes. It is telling the story, a little foreshadowing of what Daisy has in store. At Minnie's haberdashery down the road, if she can keep her mouth shut long enough to make it there, because because John Ruth, he's a hangman, but he also likes to smack a woman around every now and again. So <laughs> there's that. How do you like this song, Mister Wheeler? And are you a fan of both Jack and the White Stripes? So I love the White Stripes. I actually had this CD back in the day, and I have never liked this song. I really dislike it. Is the spot that Tarantino put it in the film, and I think that it's a little too playful, and it erases some of the mystery in the story, even though it's telling a story. Um, for me, it's the only misfire in this near-perfect film. Yeah, I just I'm not a huge fan of it, and it threw me off, and I know that it threw a lot of other people off too when you see the movie and i have never connected with it as many times as i've seen this movie i've seen it there's three fucking versions of the movie and i own all three and watch it a lot because i keep finding new shit in it and this this song's just never connected Hmm. so it's okay yeah people are allowed to be wrong you and steve are allowed to be wrong it's a lot it happens a lot but i just i cover for you i just say yep that's great great job yeah (laughs) i had heard that I don't know where I read this. It was a while ago that um, Jack White had always wanted to put out a Morricone score on vinyl because if you own a record label, it's one of your fucking mm-hmm. goals that you want to be buried with that record that you put out of his. That's one of my goals as well. I'm getting really close to. I'd heard that he had traded the fees for the use of the song in the movie for the American vinyl rights of the score, which, I mean, we're going to talk about the record later, yeah. but yeah, that's kind of how that worked out and everything. So It's a smart move. Smart move, exactly. in my opinion, by Mr. Jack White. Yeah. And the guy, he's a savant. He really is. I don't want to put him in the same... I don't want to dis- disparage people who like Prince, because Prince, in my opinion, is no. way up there. But I think he's he's in that Lenny Kravitz Prince air where he's not as flashy as Prince was, obviously, but he, too, knows a lot about music and gets his fingers in a lot of pies and just really gets music and, and how to cultivate it and bring it together and really push himself forward. You know, he's not just like, he's not just out there trying to get laid as a, as a rock star, a pop star. He's really, I mean, he's all about the music. He is, um, a lot of people don't know this, but like with that third man records and stuff, he curates a lot of stuff for mm-hmm. record store day. A few years back, he had bought the original first recording of Elvis and it had, um, I don't remember the two songs. Um, I don't remember the songs. I don't, I never bought the record cause it fucking sold out like instantly. 
but he owns it and he went and reproduced it and it looks just like his copy like the labels oh, wow. are all torn up and everything and he's all about curating this music to have it there for generations and when you i mean i was even looking at moving over to his pressing plant they just were taking a little bit too long for me when i was putting out time bandits for me to get it back um, mm -hmm. way longer than i was looking for because they're that backed up because of everything going on and because their stamp of approval on there is so high quality that I mean, yeah. that's because his name is on it. So, well, that'll take us to our second song of so called needle drops. And this one is not even a needle drop. This is the straight up right happened on camera, on film, on recording. And that is Jim's Jones at Botany Bay performed live on set by Jennifer Jason Lee as Daisy Damergoo. This song is a traditional Australian folk ballad that dates back to the early 19th century. The song's narrator, Jim Jones, is found guilty of poaching and sentenced to be transported to the penal colony of New South Wales. En route, his ship is attacked by pirates, but they are held off by the crew much to Jones' dismay, as he would have rather joined the pirates or drowned in the sea than go to Botany Bay. If you don't know when the fuck this song plays, honestly, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if you fell asleep. This is the pivotal point of the film. It's a great song. It's not about Kool-Aid, Jim Jones. <laughs> yeah, and it's not, no, it's, it, this is many <laughs> years Jim before Jim Jones. Uh, it's about a pirate ship. But Jennifer Jason Lee as Daisy, she is singing this. And obviously, you know, after we've just got done with Black Dicks and White Mouths, and we've just had Colonel Smithers or General Smithers killed, and we learned about his son has also died on these mountaintops, uh, but the same hands by Marquess Warren. And so some people are outside, they're dragging a body, they're, they're putting it out back, and the rest of the crew is inside, they're lighting up candles. And they're deciding to drink some coffee to warm themselves up from this winter. And good old lighthearted Daisy's like, maybe I'll just play a little mood music. And she asks John, can I play the guitar? John says, yes. But if it's anything else but guitar that comes back, he's going to shoot her right in the fucking throat. So I have a smart ass comeback for everything. <laughs> so she starts playing it. And first of all, Jennifer Jason Lee's voice was beautiful. I mean, I guess you would expect it's going to be at least harmonizing if she's going to sing this song, right? Like, she's not like, you know, and she's playing the guitar. And, <laughs> and of course, she decides to add an extra verse because at this point, she has watched John drink the coffee and she knows his time on the earth is short. So she basically sings a new line in the song saying such that by the time she gets to Mexico, John will already be dead. To which John does not like. To which Kurt Russell grabs an ancient guitar worth a couple thousand dollars and <laughs> smashes it against the wood post, as everyone sees. And Jennifer Jason Lee's reaction is genuine because she was playing the real thing and they had created four or five or six, something like that, replicas for Kurt to break. Well, Kurt was under the impression that she was playing a replica and he was smashing a replica when he smashed the real fucking deal. So not only do we get a live recording and version of the song, we also get a real reaction from Jennifer Jason Lee that they have to cut because you can start to see her head turn. Like she's going to look off screen and go, uh, he just broke the real fucking thing. She does. So yeah. it's awesome. I love it. It's a great scene. It can then obviously right after that. We all know that we're at this point, we in the audience are ahead of the characters, and we now know. And now we're just waiting to see how they're going to die. And then OB goes first, and then John, and then all hell breaks loose at that moment. This is the calm before the storm. This truly is the calm before the storm. Because after this, anyone who didn't like the beginning of the film, this is when it becomes it. This is where Tarantino separates himself from the thing. This, 
It goes sideways fast, and there's a lot of people who die in a very quick and brutal way. I was just recommending um, Mandy to a bunch to some people that had went and seen it, and they're like, I couldn't get by the first hour. It's the same thing with this Hateful Eight, where without that first hour and a half, the last hour and a half doesn't pay off nearly what it does. It's called a slow burn. Yes, and Mandy's the same way, which... Without that oh. first hour, you don't give a shit about these two and him getting the revenge. Well, then if people don't like that, don't go to any Craig Zoller films, who I think yeah. is, is one of my favorites next to Tarantino. I think he's like an up-and-comer like that. Yep. His movies take an hour, hour and a half to get into. Once they and do, you're like, Fuck. shit gets twisted fast. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what this is, where the way she sings it and stuff is so beautiful. And then she gets mm. her teeth fucking knocked out and her voice becomes annoying as shit. Yes. She's yelling, you're going to be an eye pokey. <laughs> well, because now the cat's out of the bag. Like, now... Now she's who she can be. Like, now she's, like, going for broke. Because she figures that they're safe. I was reading about this, too. Do you know who he originally wrote this role for? Besides Jennifer Jason Lee? Yeah. No, I have no idea. I, I didn't Jennifer look that up. Jennifer Lawrence. Oh. Which, I'm telling you, I don't think that if she played that part in this movie. I've read it. I found five, I found five sources mm-hmm. that all said this. I don't think that you have a nearly as powerful movie either because you don't feel... I would feel more sorry for Jennifer jason lee where i'm not like this bitch just got what she deserved because of the way that yeah, jennifer jason no, I know lee what played you mean. yeah there's complete difference however do we feel more so like when jennifer jason lee is getting all this stuff happening to her obviously we kind of feel bad but we kind of don't because jennifer jason lee plays it brilliantly you and i don't other people were outraged that she was really? getting it the way she did because he doesn't come out and say we talked about this before we did. We talked about it the last episode. He actually wrote an entire script that will never yep. see the light of day so that he can make sure that when he got to the end, there was the right ending. He wrote it from her point of view. Yep. Listen, folks, you don't always need to know every detail. All you need to know is Daisy Damergu is wanted to hang, and they didn't put out a Bonnie to hang her for $10,000, whatever it is, if she wasn't an evil bitch. Not They're called the hateful yeah. late for a reason. Yep. She sat there and watched people drink poison coffee because she knew they were going to. That gang is 15 killers strong. So, I mean... 15 <laughs> killers strong! <laughs> I think actually the cry would have been stronger if it was Jennifer Lawrence. I think we would have, ourselves would have felt worse for Jennifer Lawrence. Because although I would have loved to have seen Jennifer Lawrence in that turn. I mean, one yeah. of her first movies, uh, what is it? Uh, Winter's Bone. She's spectacular Fucking in that Grace. film. I mean, she's spectacular in everything she does. I really do think she's an amazing, an amazing actress. But Jennifer Jason Lee was the right move, in my opinion. There's something about the way that she plays this where she, um, Jennifer Jason Lee, I think I would doubt what, you know, she's done and everything. But then mm-hmm. again, I've never really seen her play anything where she's, you know, like this. Mm-hmm. So I just read that and I was like, God, what if? You know, it's like when I read that Ellen DeGeneres was, you know, almost in Pulp Fiction and shit. You know, it's like, what if? <laughs> you know, she would have done what you call pardon point. He's over there. Who? Him. <laughs> she wouldn't have been anything. It's not like she's no, she Bobby on. Um, I think the Rosanna Arquette part is what she auditioned for. Well, again, this is and this is pre when Ellen had not come out of the closet yet. Ellen had a TV show. And it's not the Ellen. When you say Ellen, people think of Ellen, the TV show, and now the monster, who yeah. apparently is a really piece of shit behind the yeah. scenes. Sorry to get off subject, but I just read that, and I don't think... I'd ever heard you talk about it on here before, which I was like, no, that's really? great. That's who he wrote it for, really? Well, that'll take us to song three. Now, for me, I feel this way about how you felt Apple Blossom, and it is Now You're Alone by David Hess. This song originally appeared in the 1972 horror film The Last House on the Left. The song was composed and performed by David Hess, who not only composed the music for the film, but started it as well. Hess began his career co-writing songs recorded by Elvis Presley and Pat Boone, and ended it by teaching improvisational theater to youngsters through the California Film Institute. This is the most on-the-nose song he's ever put in a film, in my opinion. I don't have a problem with the song. It's just very on-the-nose, because the song plays as Joe Gage 
played by the amazing Michael Madsen, tracks down poor Charlie, just a, a helping hand at Minnie's who's been partially shot. He's the reason the door handle gets shot off because he was coming back inside and then runs away. He's tracked down outside Minnie's and is gunned down in a storage shed by Joe Gage. And this song plays. And on the album, it ends at the exact same moment that Joe Gage pulls and you hear the gunshot and it goes off. So this is the most, in my opinion, on the nose standout. Like, oh boy. However, because I've liked this film so much and have watched it so many times, it's grown on me. It just has. It's one of those things where I remember the theater going, wow. We are really on the nose now, Mr. Tarantino. We are really just not even trying to hide what the song is. You are just basically saying, fuck it, I don't care anymore. And over time, though, it has it has grown on me because it is Michael Madsen. And every time I see Michael Madsen do violence and how gleefully he does it and realize that he actually can't stomach real violence, it blows my mind. He should get an Oscar for that because either one of two things. Either that's true and he's an amazing actor or he's a fucking sociopath and he's lying to us and he really does secretly want to cut motherfuckers' ears off and shoot people in the shotgun. So it's one of those two things. And if I ever get a chance to meet that man, I would just like to ask him, like, really, you don't like violence because you're so good? good at doing it on screen like deliciously good at it especially in tarantino films your thoughts on now you're all alone um well it's you didn't it's from the movie last house on the left um recorded by david hess who is also the killer in that movie and i think there's another movie too that he was in where he plays almost the identical part last house in the park or something like that like steve's gonna shit when i don't get this right last house in the park last house on the street last house to get candy last house on the mail house room. on the edge of the park is what the movie is ah called. there we go but mr hess was a recording artist way before he ever became an actor and he actually is the person that recorded the song all shook up first before a year before elvis did one of those things that I found, and he's recorded a lot of songs over the years and then did a lot of the score and stuff for the movie, the Wes Craven hit movie, Last House on the Left, which I have never watched because I'm not a huge rape revenge fan, despite Kill Bill being one of my favorite films. Well, you were you were kind of a big fan on our Pop Shot Thriller? movie. I Thriller. was not. <laughs> you, you call it Pop Shot? Your Pop Shot movie. <laughs> I love one because people keep coming up to me and talking to me at these conventions and <laughs> listening to your podcast and it's like that movie is the one that they're... Thank guys, you, fans. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. That's so awesome. Maybe one day you'll get to meet us both on the trail. I, I am planning on uh, hanging out with Mr. Wheeler at some of these conventions at some point in time because it just sounds like a lot of fun. I've never seen the movie. I don't own the soundtrack from that one. I'm just not a fan of that type of movie, but I like the song and how it's used in the film. Mm -hmm. I like it's in all three versions in the same place. <laughs> um, they didn't Donnie Darko it. Thank and God. it's, you know, yeah, it's it's works really effectively here. It's a very, you know, like, unnerving song I mm -hmm. guess would be the word for it you know and it yeah for what's going on right after the big shoot the you know when they just massacre everybody in there with you know pretty much just for shits and well almost everybody mm -hmm. leaving people almost. behind for for fucking you know yeah he, he had something he had something <laughs> he looks like a like, white mouth that a black dick's gonna go into who's running this <laughs> gang is it Bob because Bob actually like starts fucking working at the place and everything while he's there Bob almost almost is upset that they don't believe he works there. like he's almost like no I work here now like I think Bob was gonna like stay I don't think he was gonna go with him if they want I think he was gonna stay and run minis yeah and the well, and there's that scene in the road he's plucking the chicken He's yeah, we're plucking the chicken. That's what I was just gonna say. Like he's like, this is unplucked chickens. Bad luck. And I was like, 
no shit really <laughs> oh my god i'm gonna have to remember that <laughs> those of you who are getting chickens unplucked <laughs> we might be back to those times again but it'll take us to our final song of droppage and that is there won't be many coming home from the late great roy orbison this song first appeared in the 1967 american musical comedy western the fastest guitar alive starring roy orbison who performed a total of seven original songs in the film which all appeared on his 1967 album of the same name this song reached number 32 on the australian singles chart and number 18 on the uk singles chart now this song plays over the end credits of the film and as i've stated and i still will hold by even though the lyrics and tone of this song is pretty much an anti-war song and uh, has really sour meaning to it it's an upbeat song and all of tarantino's films end on some sort of upbeat thanks for coming Hope you enjoyed song where, you know, because when you first hear this, I had never heard the song until until this movie. You know, my parents, it's, it, this is of their era, and I don't think my parents were Roy Orbison fans, so I didn't really hear a whole lot of Roy Orbison growing up. I knew of Roy Orbison through, I knew he was older, I knew he was from that day, but really from the Traveling Wilburys in the 80s. Oh. You know what I mean? Like the Tom Petty, yeah. Dylan, uh, what's his name, the lead singer from ELO. Those guys, when they formed that super group back in the late 80s, I just knew Roy Orbison from there. And I, you know, I'd heard some of his old songs from the 50s and the dance sock hop songs that my Great parents would talk stuff. about. Yeah, but I wasn't a big fan, and I'd never heard this song for sure. Once you know it, you listen to the verse and go, geez, that's not a real happy song. But it's upbeat. It's a march song. It's literally a, an upbeat marching tune that is an anti-war song, and it works beautifully in this fucking film and at the end. I love it. I think that's what Tarantino does best, regardless of everything else. I mean, there's another Morricone song or two that follows well, this, but really as well. we're, as you get up and start walking out of the theater, this is what you're hearing, and you always feel good, like I said about Reservoir Dogs. Everyone we've been following for the whole movie just gets killed, both of them, and... It's put a lime in a coconut, and you're out there just, hey, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think that the final shot in this movie, too, is something that he's wanted to do since Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. it just, where the way it sweeps across Mini and kind of mm-hmm. shows like the fucking bedlam that's happened. Yeah. And, then it, you know, while the song is playing, it, it, imagine that at the end of Reservoir Dogs, yeah. where it's going across the. Or he just craned up, and we can see every, like, we get an all overview. All the cops running in, yeah. an overhead shot of it, and which yeah. maybe we'll get. We'll, the, we're doing our we next podcast. We will be talking right about it. We will be talking about it next year. As a matter of fact, it will be Bunch in of season white cops one. running in. We will, yeah, we will be talking about possibly the Reservoir Dogs remake he talked about with all black actors. Yep. <laughs> Definitely. Look, we know Tarantino, it's all white cops bursting. It would have been killer for just for that camera to swoop back, and then all you yeah. see all the cops running in yeah. and shit, and then you see what happened, but he left so much up to the imagination. And I don't Also think... budgets. Sometimes, you know, you get, you get very creative when you have uh, a small budget. We talked about it, too, like on the Death Proof. Um, I did the podcast with you with uh, mm-hmm. the episode about the um, Roundtable, yeah. where he yeah, did it all in yeah. one shot. And you know that he wanted to do that for Reservoir Dogs, but we don't know if he had the budget and the confidence to do it at the time. True. Plus, he's in the scene, though. That's yeah. another thing. So Because yep. he opens the movie. He opens talking, and that's a balls move right off the bat. But yeah. also, I think where they're located in that diner, that tables up against the window made it harder, where at least when he was able to set it up for the one in Death Proof, they centralized that table in the middle of the diner to make it easier for them to make that constant circle. Because you can move tables out and make them look closer than they really are, as opposed to where they were. Because well, Chris yeah. Penn, <laughs> I love that's always in there. Every time he gets up, he trips on the fucking chair of Joe's and almost falls as that's going fading to black. Every time watch it in the opening scene, it's great. Because they, they probably it. only did one take. On Think about how many... You you know, back and forth they had to do on that. There's a lot of coverage shots in that. So, and you think about though how popular that movie is. How many people went and eaten there because of that movie? I know we would. 
Like, well, what's going to happen? I'm telling you, whenever we go to see his TV show turned movie, <laughs> oh, we will. But yeah, I love this song. This is a really great song. I listen to it more and more when it, when it comes up on my playlist. And now I'm, I'm starting to learn the lyrics and hear the lyrics. And it's just really well done. The rest of this soundtrack for it's from a movie called The Fastest Guitar Live starring Roy Orbison, who mm-hmm. had, he had signed like a three picture deal. The movie was such a fucking bomb that they were like, we're letting you out of your contract. You don't have to do these other two movies. <laughs> with us. Amazing singer. I guess he's not a very good actor. I've never seen the movie because I don't think it's available anywhere. Um, I do have the vinyl. I picked it up for like a dollar once. And so I have the same version that Tarantino would have had of this. Mm-hmm. But I also have. I have a seven-inch single of this, which is what I think Tarantino has. And if you listen to the version in the movie, you can hear scratches and stuff in it. Mm-hmm. And even the one that you are going to stream, it's got scratches. It's from Tarantino's mm-hmm. own record that he they re- made a recording of the record from because he wants to hear it in the movie the way he's been listening to it in his house. So, which he's a really big Roy Orbison fan. I grew up with Orbison. My dad, it's, I think, one of his favorites. My love for the movie Blue Velvet is just kind of, which is a mm-hmm. huge fucking needle drop that I know inspired him, you know? So, yeah, that's a big one. Well, that will now bring us to a fun part. We're going to get into it. And myself and Frank started this little journey <laughs> last month. And it is the other tracks on the soundtrack, and there are eight of them. And they're all dialogue. Well, technically, there's seven dialogue, but there's eight. And we're going to discuss because it's the last one. And once again, we do have one little drop in there that is uh, much like I talked about Gummy Mouth Bitches last month. It is an extra scene that does not make the film. And our first one is Major Warren meets Daisy Domergo. Obviously, we got our stagecoach. We got little Daisy. We got good old Kurt. And we got Mr. Samuel L. Then we get another great one, maybe one of my favorites. And this one feels like... We got a lot more of the um, juicy parts. I, I do wish that there's one coming up that had gone into what we always go into. Philadelphia! But it, it didn't. <laughs> I was a little disappointed. But uh, Frontier Justice by Mowbray. That's a great fucking moment. I love that moment. Uh, then we get to this. Here is Daisy Domergue. Anyone who has seen the original trailer for Hateful Eight. It's where Daisy does the whole, like, she's going to hang herself. I love that. I love that fucking. It's such a nice little thing that, you know, she threw in. Brilliant. But again, like you said, I don't know that Jennifer Lawrence is adding that. Just, just no. you know, no, nothing against Jennifer Lawrence. I'm sure like, she adds something else that we go, wow, that's amazing. But maybe jazz hands. Yeah, <laughs> just a little tata shake. <laughs> anyways, anyways, keeping it clean. Then, <laughs> then this one, son of a bloody end killer of Baton Rouge. <laughs> that one, and it goes on forever. It's it like does, three minutes. and I'm so glad it got cut from the film because whew, when you listen to it, it. it it does it's give it does give credence. I know, but it does give credence to what Spike Lee said. That one is the most gratuitous, yeah, since unnecessary Jimmy. use of the N word since Jimmy in Pulp Fiction. It's like, well, too, it, yeah, it, it's long, and it's it's just remember, it's two racist Southern men after the Civil War. True, War. but it's but it's like hand, like we just on. keep yeah because and the reason I'm glad it got cut from the theatrical release is because there's no fucking way after that moment. Even though we know why Marcus is going over there to fuck with him, that he goes over there and fucks with him. That he well, that he would take the stew from him in the first place. Yes, yeah, exactly. If you remember who takes him the stew, so if, folks, you listen to it and you tell me what you think. It's in the roadshow version and it is in the Netflix version. They left yeah. some of it in. It's basically what Scott's describing is it's those two talking like they're an old married couple, 
just arguing back and forth with he trying to get it. And yeah. Mannix is like not even really saying the N-word, but it's literally just come over here and he's eat. just keeps oh. saying the N-word and like just emphasizing it. And it's hard to listen to. Like, I think even if you were a racist and you used to be like, Jesus, I mean, I know I'm a really racist, but people. my yeah. God, you are saying the N-word way more than even we you, would say it. It's I unbelievable. Even, I lost count. Like it's just like because it goes on this it and then does. It, it's like two plus minutes and it's a long it feels like yeah. three well, minutes you're like, in the roadshow version. I don't and I don't remember it when we saw it in the theater. Like I don't remember that. So yeah, I was listening to this the other day. I'm like, why glad the he fuck cut did it. they include I'm this? Glad he cut it. Holy and a lot of, fuck. and with the Morricone fans because uh, I was reading about this online. A lot of them were really pissed off that in the middle of this gorgeous score that got put out on vinyl with these deluxe releases. You have this racist rhetoric dialogue tracks that Tarantino likes to put in there. I get the it, middle. but to all you more coneheads, huh? huh? All you more coneheads, listen. It's his fucking movie. He's doing it for Tarantino. <laughs> that would be like Tarantino saying to Morricone, hey, I know I'm asking you to do a Western. Just don't do all the Western stuff. Just yeah. do something different. He didn't. It's it, it, No, no, that's what I'm saying. But I'm saying like that'd be the same. Like, So don't expect Tarantino to change. He's not asking Morricone to change. Don't ask him to change. All right? Just fucking skip it. He, he got asked during an interview, well, what does the score sound like? He says, it's terrible. What do you, what do you think? It's Morricone. I will tell you, though, there is no whistling. That was his only shit. There is no whistling. It. Well, it, no. it doesn't. It doesn't feel like it plays. Like it doesn't feel like in the wintertime you whistle, anyways. Especially with that blizzard hot on your ass. Exactly. Speaking of hot on your ass, Uncle Charlie Stew, the great little dialogue for Sam talking how he knows Bob's lying. Then there's the suggestive Oswaldo Moby, which is the part I'm talking about. It's him talking about them getting ready to fight each other, and he. Oh, I wish they had carried it on to separating it into two different sections and Philadelphia and oh. When I was listening to it, I forgot that they cut it. So as I'm listening to it, I'm going, oh, here it comes. Here, and then I was like, oh, you son of a bitch. You blue balls, son of a bitch. I still can't stand his performance in this movie. A year later, and I think I've seen the movie You're 10 times. You're out of your goddamn mind. He's putting out a performance because he's playing a character. God damn, we'll have to explain this to you and Steve all the time. <laughs> I know, and it's you watch Daisy's reactions when she comes in and he's playing that character. She's just as interesting to watch as what Well, Roth... think about it. Mobrium and Bob are fucking selling it. Joe yeah. Gage is not. You're like Joe Gage. Like, if you walked in, like, Joe Gage is the guy. You know what I mean? Like, yep. he's the worst. He's eating peanuts, and he says he's writing his a story about himself. I was like, no. Mowbray is... You're like, not a mama's boy. He's that yeah. guy. Bob works here. You're in. Yep. <laughs> until until the, the sign with the no, no well, dog. Well, yeah, and... but only Mark West knew that, so... And you, you hear that and it's like, oh, Jesus Christ. I love Manic's reaction, too. <laughs> oh, which the other night, too, I think we, we talked about it before. <laughs> his reactions to any violence is the funniest shit in this it's whole movie best. because... There's no way that he well, that's the thing. ever did anything in this war. Yeah, he never was with his dad. He, whenever it was happening, he wasn't a part of it. So yeah. he's living vicariously through him, but he's, he's also trading on his dad's name and reputation. And then when it comes down to it, however, he does prove capable at the end. And good for him. If he, yeah, when he needs to. Yeah, but it's just his reactions are fucking great. Which is a great lead because the other track is Daisy's speech where she tries to barter with him. There's 15 shrines. <laughs> Get me in my pokey. And then the one that people don't consider, but it is, it's the Lincoln letter. There is a version, uh, I forget the song, 
Um, you'll probably be able to name it real quickly, but the letter D Lincoln. Yes. Is that the name of the actual song that they have it? Yep. So there's the actual song on the album. You can hear it just the instrumental, the actual way it was. And then they add it immediately after it. Same song, but we get that great ending of Mannix reading the Lincoln letter, which that's the character arc from the end in the stables. Got a letter from Lincoln to reading the Lincoln letter, having seen common ground and reading it with such conviction, with such that... conviction, with, with starting to see things in a different perspective, especially now that he knows he's dying. He starts to realize that some of the things he may have held on to were, were, were absolutely useless and pointless. Got him nothing. Look where it got him. So I think it's beautiful. So I added that in as, as an eighth dialogue track because it is dialogue. You can hear the, the musical piece without it. But I honestly, why would you want to? I think it works so beautifully now that you got it on the album together. Now, the part that Mr. Wheeler has been fucking chomping at the bit for. We have five tracks not on the original score, in the original theatrical version of the film. We're going to skip one that's not on it because it's from The Roadshow, and not many people have seen The Roadshow. The first one is Reagan's theme from The Exorcist 2. Fantastic. The fact that we've got a couple of horror scores in there, too. And let's be honest. Obviously, Morricone wrote all of them. That's why we're using them. But seamless. If you have never seen The Exorcist 2, and you did not know that this was from The Exorcist 2, and you just heard it, and as you did in the theater, you would not know that technically that is also a needle drop, which is why it doesn't actually appear on this version of the soundtrack. It does appear on the one that they created at Abbey Road. Man, I mean, it is seamless. Like, really, you, it's hard to tell that that wasn't originally a part of this score. Am I wrong? It's the part when um, the horses are going across. So The Exorcist 2, for anybody that doesn't know, The Exorcist was so good that there's no way that any movie was ever going to live up to it. Part 2 was notoriously bad, and they got Morricone to do the score for it, and the score is the best part of the movie. Um, I own it just because it's Morricone, but the score is fucking fantastic. And he picked this out of it, and it works so well with the horses running across and everything. It's such a beautiful piece of music. So, yeah, like, I'm glad that they included this and gave it a new, like, you know, new breath into into that track. And it, it fits it fits so perfect. Um if you haven't if you don't know which one we're talking about, go go stream it. You can. It's it's a great song. Another one is two people playing it actually. It's Silent Night by Damien Bashir. Unless of course it's in the close up, then it's the hands of Quentin Tarantino playing Silent Night. It probably is good that they left it out because he messes it up anyways, and it's Silent Night. However, if they were going to put it in there and you're going to have the whole speech of the dicks and how he kills them, I would have been okay with that. I would have sat there and listened to that. But it's fine that it's off. No big deal. But now we get to the juicy ones. Three unused tracks from the amazing 1982 sci-fi fucking benchmark for all sci-fi movies from it the thing we've got eternity bestiality and despair all three songs were unused music pieces from the thing which in 1982 was nominated for a razzie for the worst score now (laughs) wrap your head around that as three pieces of music that wasn't used from what was considered the worst score of a year some 20, some 34 years later, not only is it not one of the worst scores, it's a part of the only Academy Award winning soundtrack of Ennio Morricone's illustrious career. Well, it just shows that, that the people were not ready for that movie because the movie was panned and did terrible, which it opened the same day as fucking Blade Runner, which also had the same. Yes, I mentioned that on our last episode. I said it's the biggest. This year we had the opening of Barbenheimer. In my opinion, on the opening, the best opening ever, the biggest opening is Blade Runner and The Thing. They set the standard for sci-fi movies from that moment on. For the next 25, 30 years. Still, still. 
Now, Mr. Wheeler is going to impart on us some wisdom about the amazing The Thing score. Do you have any reason why these three pieces did not make it into the original score? Or is this just one of those things like, you know, it didn't fit. We don't have time. This scene was cut. So there is reasons, but like it's kind of misconception that these were unused because they've been on every record of the thing score since day one. So is this that it just didn't make it into yeah, the they film? Didn't, it wasn't put in the film. So, yeah, I'll get into it here. Like, I actually wrote something out. So if it sounds like I'm reading this, I did. But because it, there's a lot of fucking information here for everybody. If you're a fan of the thing, a uh, fan of Morricone, Carpenter, all that, like, to hear the story of it. Uh, so Carpenter was working with the largest budget he'd ever worked with, which was $15 million, and decided to hire out the score so that he could concentrate on the visuals of the film, which were going to be very complicated. And despite having success as a composer, Universal was hesitant to hire him as the composer for the film. His producer recommended Morricone, and as both were giant Leone and Western fans, they jumped at the chance. To this point, Carpenter was in a groove in marrying his music to the screen and had scored all of his films. He has stated since that he struggled to relinquish control and kept Morricone on a very very tight leash during the process in which he played his score for escape from New York to the composer repeatedly over and over again. He had thoughts on what he wanted asked. Um, he wanted very atmospheric and kept telling Mar Morricone to use less notes. Having not seen the film and basing his ideas on the script and Carpenter's notes and discussions, Morricone stripped down his usual design and made music to meet the director's demands and finished numerous cuts for the film. During the editing process, Morricone was finally invited in to see the film that was coming together and was so inspired by the footage that he saw, he recorded additional cues, telling Carpenter to do with them as he wished. Carpenter did shape up some cues of his own to help tie things together where Morricone's music was not working in the, during the editing phase, which is where these three cuts were left unused and Carpenter put out did his own music for it. So Eternity, Bestiality, and Despair were not used. Again, the film was released in 82 and bombed at the box office. The score by Morricone, as Scott said, was nominated for a Golden Razzie for the worst film score. It did not win. I don't remember what did, but fast forward to 2015. The Thing is now considered a classic, if not one of the best horror and sci-fi films ever made. And Morricone's score is on the top of Audiophile's list as one of the best film scores ever created. Tarantino announces at the San Diego Comic-Con that Morricone has recorded 50 minutes of new music of original score for his film, The Hateful Eight. Being pressed for time while composing, Morricone dusted off the three unused tracks from the Thing sessions, and QT placed them within the film. Again, Morricone wrote the score blind, basing his inspiration off the script and discussions with Tarantino, who compared the film to the Thing. Morricone used that to inspire him while adding in a Western flair where it was needed. The three unused Morricone tracks that have been included have been on every release of the Thing since 1982. Um, my original vinyl has them on it. But... All of those releases have always skipped over the John Carpenter tracks. In 2020, Sacred Bones Records, working with Waxwork Records, released a box set of Morricone's complete score to The Thing with the four missing cues of Carpenter, who had re-recorded them with his new band that he's been touring with that includes his son. The original version of the Carpenter's cues that were used in the film have never been officially released. The Hateful Eight is released in theaters in 2015 in December. It makes $150 million. With filmgoers praising the score in 2016, the 87-year-old Morricone wins the Academy Award for Best Original Score for his work on The Hateful Eight. If you want to hear those cues, all four of them were just released the last in the last two weeks on the new John Carpenter album of 
film with his band. He's been re-recording his old film mm-hmm. scores. He just put out a new record. All four of them are on there for the first time. So you're able to stream them for the first time ever. You had to have them on vinyl before. That's what I found out. I found, I think I got eight sources to be able to get all that together. So I think that's about as accurate as I can get based off internet sources that are not Wikipedia. Sorry for droning. No, not at all. This that's what this is about. Formative is fucked though. I was like, I we only got one left. Yeah. I mean, you can't talk about this movie and the score without talking about the thing because he wrote this movie because he was trying to grab his head around yeah. the thing. And so it was like his it's like a cathartic thing for him to write his own version of the thing while trying to figure out the thing. And who better than to get the guy Morricone? And then you're gonna add in by fucking pure luck music that's unused from the same fucking movie? Amazing. No, and but some of the stuff like uh with Morricone being 87 at this time, when he talks about his work on the thing, he's given interviews that have two completely different fucking things he said from one year to the next. And Carpenter has <laughs> done the same thing. Where I read one interview with Carpenter where he's saying, Well, I just let him have free reign. And then I read another one where he's like, Well, I had to really reel him in a little bit. And I just kept playing Escape from New York. I want very sparse, you know, as few notes as possible. You know, like this is what I want. I want it to be atmospheric, not grand and majestic like you're normally writing. It just, it's the, the different, like you read so much shit on this once you get going. And then I found a book of Carpenter on Carpenter. I think that's what it's called. And uh, I read through the stuff on the thing, and that's where a lot of this came from, from an interview he gave a few years back. So, yeah, you can stream those four songs for the first time now. Um, and I think those, they still have never been released, the originals. You can get a bootleg with them on it, but who wants a bootleg? Exactly. <laughs> Unless it's exactly. a roadshow of Hateful Eight. Like I said, the two are synergetic. This is a synergetic moment in time where two people at the top of their game come together. The man wants more cone. He's trying to make his own version of his thought process of the thing. He gets the guy who scores the thing, and fucking lo and behold, he's able to use three pieces of music from the thing that don't make it into the film, and they're now in his film. And so the two are now tied to fucking together for history, and Morricone wins a fucking Oscar for this fucking soundtrack due to a man who fucking loved him more than anything and was even willing to take fucking shots from him at, with, you know, obviously, like you said, didn't say a word, just let it roll. Because in all honesty, sometimes when there's someone of that level, you kind of just take your licks, even if it isn't true. You know, you just kind of go, you know what? I respect this man in his opinion, and hmm, maybe. But Tarantino brings Morricone back to life to a generation of filmgoers who didn't know about him. And in return, he gets one of the greatest scores ever made from the man he loves, and he wins that man a motherfucking Oscar. Not, not even... Disney could write that good a fucking script to tie it up neatly. I want to tell people about something that a lot of people don't know even exists. Everyone knows I'm a fucking vinyl fanatic, and there is two versions mm-hmm. of this. There's a UK version and a US one. That third band put out the the one. It's a huge trifold. It's got two posters in it. There's even Tarantino wrote some stuff for it. But Third Man also put out in 2016 an exclusive to Third Man record stores only. It was limited to 500 units. It was $400. It was a two LP on 180 gram vinyl. It had the same posters and booklets. It just had a different of it, but it came with an 18 gauge galvanized steel ammo box with real bullet holes and a laser etching of the hateful eight logo on the top The box contained the score and soundtrack spread out across eight, seven inch blood red with gun smoke vinyl records that all had separate sleeves with unique art for each of the hateful eight characters in it. It also came with a metal noose enamel pin that was custom stamped in a blood splattered box and hidden underneath everything 
was a hidden replica of the Lincoln letter. This box set now will cost you 500 fucking dollars. It's so fucking cool. I've never actually seen one. They are for sale and they cost a lot of money, but like someday maybe I'll own one. <laughs> if someone ever wants to gift me one, yeah. I will fly like, out to your domicile. I will record an episode with you and I will be your yeah, house that, caretaker for a Anybody week. that you ever say like... If you have kids, have you I will I'll send you get pictures. them off to school. I will help them. I'm a teacher. I will help them. Whatever you need for a week, I will gladly give up my service well, somebody took all 500 of these out into a field and shot guns into the son of a bitches every one of them is unique differently from the one before it so it's such a cool set yeah. i you know like i just if i've never had a chance to talk about that. i think for our european maybe even canadian listeners are like whoa someone did that for our american listeners kind of like yeah but they're probably gonna do that anyway so this is america we'll shoot at anything <laughs> we just don't even need a reason like we're looking for things to shoot yeah, exactly at. yeah i just always, i've always like i was gonna bring it up on the last one too but you know we're talking about the music so let's ask our guest some fucking questions all right so let's get your final questions before people start leaving this show in, in droves what is your favorite track on this soundtrack sir the last red rock stagecoach track one la ultima mm. de la genza de la red rock yeah um yeah the first one as soon as that the credits yeah. the, as soon as it adds a sense of danger and fear that oboe as the stagecoach comes up that mm -hmm. snowy road who could possibly be in that fucking stagecoach that would go mm -hmm. like deserve this kind of music um it builds dread of what's mm -hmm. coming that theme tells a story for us without any dialogue it tells what to expect and it's always a good trait of a good section of the score when you don't you don't need dialogue there and you need the obviously the 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 eye part of it as long as well as the ears which he just fucking nailed that is the one of the coolest openings to any film that you'll see is that slow creep perfect marriage of music and oh, visuals yeah. perfect and it tells it tells the whole story of the whole film i think what adds that music with that fucking jesus wooden cross covered in snow but we have no clue why that's there but that it just adds that element of like what the fuck is going and then on here starts writing get in there Yep. What is your least favorite track on the soundtrack? Apple Blossom. Well, you know what? I, I should have known that early, but it's okay. Well, I don't like the. I do not like the Crystal Gale one that we did not discuss either. That's in the Roadshow. That really pulled me out of the film right in the middle. So, um, yeah, we didn't discuss it, but it is in the Roadshow. There's a Crystal Gale song right in the middle, but the Apple Blossom is the one that's on the soundtrack that I don't like. It pulls me out of the film every fucking time and I cannot wait for it to be done and Chris Mannix to just show up. Which actually, I think he... Now, then you get the, the Lincoln letter and he punches him and he you almost know, ripped my goddamn arm off. And what is the most underrated track in the soundtrack in your opinion? La Lettera de Lincoln. Lincoln's letter. Um, such a majestic piece of music that gets lost behind the ending of the film where we finally get to hear what was actually on the letter read by... Walton Goggins, who's dying and just wonderful in this role. Track is the one on the score that really reminds me the most of the Spaghetti Western soundtracks that Morricone is known for and is a real callback and homage to all those wonderful scores. The rest of the score has minor Western flair and reminds me more of his work on The Thing and the Giallo films that he did, but that one really packs everything up and send us, sends us home before queuing in that Roy Orbison with the, you know, the warnings about the hells of war and everything that it does mm -hmm. close with. But it kind of, you know, the segue between the two is so wonderful. And they just, you know, these two guys that fucking hated each other three hours ago, you know. Yeah, from the minute they saw each other, from the minute they got in the coach. Oh, no, you got me talking yeah. politics. The from the moment they get in the coach together. Yeah, that's the, it. You got the head. 
It, it is a beautiful moment. Like we've just watched horrific things happen, but yet we know two men are dying. And he reads this with that music. And like I said, it just lifts you up. Like it, maybe it's an American thing, but it has like American, like almost like Rocky, let's go get him team feel to it. And you're just inspired. I saw the movie, I think, I don't even remember how many times in the theater, but a couple, more than a couple. I saw it, mm -hmm. you know, probably over four or five times. I never noticed the music in the background of it until I got the record and started listening to it. That's how powerful his reading of that letter is at the end mm -hmm. of the film. Like even... um you saw the documentary that we were talking about. They actually bring him mm -hmm. in live and he records this track live with Morricone on the set. And it's not on the record that I have, but I think might be the one that's on this record. I'm not sure. But the original, yeah. I really, really love that piece of music. The horns and stuff in it is so just, it's so different from the rest of the score. And it takes, it's none of the, you know, that brooding fucking sound that's going on through it, that rumble. And then you get into that and it's like, you know, like there's some hope. Yes. And in what he's reading, there is hope. Roy Orbison tells you later. They may not all be coming. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't <laughs> think that either one of them made it. I know we've talked about this before. No. I don't think that. Just like in the thing, I don't think either of them made it, but who knows? Who knows? John Carpenter has said recently that there is an answer. And if you it. watch the movie and send him a check, he'll tell you. He'll tell you <laughs> I saw it. <laughs> Son of a bitch. He will not say anything about it. No, but you know what? I'm glad he doesn't because just like I'm sure, I'm sure Tarantino has an idea of what's in that briefcase. When he wrote it, he had an idea of what's in it, but he doesn't tell us, and that we don't need to know. It's better for us to... I'd rather have an argument for two hours with somebody about why Childs isn't or is, or why McCready might... As opposed to being like, nope, we know. I actually read a thing here recently that um, somebody thinks that the Lincoln letter is what's in that fucking briefcase now. Because there's a point where he hands it, and it kind of shines a little bit when they're in the stagecoach. And I was like, I, I fucking doubt it. I still Never think it's know. money to John Travolta, but... It'd be cooler if it was the Lincoln letter. Is that what I think it is? It's the old McDonald's Monopoly <laughs> game-winning piece. Marcellus was hungry. <laughs> oh, now where does this soundtrack rank for you in all of his soundtracks? And we've only got one more after this, but how many, where does this rank for you? Okay, so as a soundtrack, this is my lowest ranked, but it is one of my favorite film scores ever written for a film and in my top three Marconi scores with The Great Silence. The Thing in Once Upon a Time in the West. And there is a huge difference between soundtrack and score. There absolutely is. Especially when we're talking Tarantino world. Yep. For people who don't know, the soundtrack is all of the songs and shit that are, you know, whatever. And then you've got score, which is the orchestrated music that you hear. And mm -hmm. yeah, for the soundtrack portion, it's my, my least favorite one. There's a, I love the Roy Orbison, the David Hess, but the score is just fucking phenomenal. Like it's one of the best scores I think ever written. And that will do it for this month's Hymn of Devotional. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Sean Wheeler, co-host of the Splathouse Podcast, for joining me. Now, you can find the link to all of Sean's endeavors, along with their socials, in our show's notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. Now, if you'd be so kind and take a moment to like, review, subscribe, and follow us, the Church would greatly appreciate it as it will help other Tarantino fans like yourselves find the show. So join me again in two weeks as show newcomer Thomas Hippler of the Fanatec Podcast drops in for our final Under the Influence of Season 2 as he helps me take a look at two of the films that helped inspire Tarantino's self-proclaimed magnum opus, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, those films being The Bandit and The Wrecking Crew. So until next time, this has been the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always.
motherfucker. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production. <laughs>